Welcome to the Tell Me Podcast. I'm your host, Ilya. Uh, this is the first episode. Um, obviously not an influencer or someone with a large social media following. Um, I think I'll call this the intro or icebreaker episode where I tell you guys about me um, and what you can expect from this podcast. So let's get into it. Um, I was born in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Uh, come from a fairly diverse background. Um, my mom's Malaysian and my dad's Italian. Uh, sort of in addition to the diversity at home, I was also privileged to grow up in the international or um, expat community in Kuala Lumpur and for a few years in Singapore as well. Uh, I attended a school and sort of was, yeah, was part of a community where everyone was from everywhere else. Um, Pretty sure all the all the continents were accounted, yeah, accounted for. Um, I don't think I took this for granted at the time, um, but you know, as a kid, I don't think I realized quite how special it was as well. Um, in the current sort of times where things are so, I suppose, polarized and divisive, it was it was really nice enjoying the diversity of opinions, cultures, religions, and so on. Um, so at a very young age, I was influenced by the people around me. I'm in my 30s now, uh, child of the 80s, you know, before social media, um, before the internet is what it is today, uh, before influencers, that sort of thing. Um, yes, was influenced a lot by uh, my grandfather. Um, he was sort of my, you know, one of my first heroes as a, as a child. He was a retired captain in the Royal um, Malayan Navy. He was sort of, you know, physically short and stuff, but larger than life. Um, he'd tell me about his time in the Navy winning military boxing competitions, um, you know, fighting pirates off the Malaysian coasts. And he'd, he'd spend you know, days just riding around his sports motorbikes. Um, and my grandmother, you know, one of the most gentle of souls, uh, always... Always cooking, providing food, not just for our family, but the entire neighborhood. Um, you know, you always sort of had a seat at her table. Uh, and then growing up with my with my mom, my mama, <laughs> a real badass. Uh, she used to actually parachute every weekend. Uh, and then she had me and, you know, it just went downhill from there, obviously. <laughs> um, she was brown belt in Taekwondo, just, you know, fierce, but equally uh, as nurturing uh, woman. And then my dad, who, you know, is probably the smartest person I know, speaks like eight languages fluently. Um, you could probably talk about any topic at any point in history and just just a very hardworking and uh, dedicated man. So just, you know, from the get-go, I had a really good, solid base, uh, positive role models in my immediate family, um, an amazing community outside of my family, you know, in, in the school, my friends, uh, teachers, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, basically, I didn't have to go 
or look too far for inspiration or motivation. It was right there for the taking for me. Um, but despite this, I don't know, I just felt that something was missing. So one of the aspects, and you know, it certainly is, I don't want it to be considered like a negative or a downside. Is this something that happens? I suppose it's, you know, growing up in such diversity, it's hard to pinpoint uh, something specific that ties you to any one place, you know, many specific culture. Uh, you know, nowadays, I think it's referred to as being a third culture kid. It's kind of like being from everywhere and nowhere at the same time, um, which sort of led to sort of a belongingness um, conundrum, I suppose you could call it, which, you know, not really knowing where I belonged. Um, again, it's not, not a negative at all, but it's just a sort of interesting uh it was an interesting journey to navigate through. Um, then sort of fast forwarding through my childhood in, in 2001, uh, late one evening, sort of Malaysian time. I remember staring at a TV screen and watching a plane fly into a building in, uh, in New York city, you know, as an avid sort of eighties, nineties action movie fan, I was like, just so stoked to see this trailer to this you know new movie. I was like, Holy crap. The graphics are really good. Uh, you know, the next thought was, it's going to be Arnold, is it going to be Stallone, Keanu, maybe Will Smith, I don't, don't know, you know, and then you sort of, the mood kind of changed, it really, you know, you could feel the mood change in the room, I suppose, um, went over to my parents' room, and could tell from their body language, it, you know, this wasn't a blockbuster movie, it was, it was real life, then another plane hit, um, the towers are on fire, you, know, you see these little pixels coming out of the building and you realize you know those are people jumping out of the buildings to their deaths um basically so they don't have to burn alive um and then the towers collapse you know the the dust debris the red and blue lights in the background um i knew then you know the next day sort of everything had changed um so i mentioned previously i went to an international school it was it was an American sort of curriculum or American-based international school. Um, the usual buzz in the morning just it was was nowhere to be found. Um, you know, at the time, I, I, I didn't know this, but this was sort of a junction in my life that would pretty much shape me to be who I am, uh, yeah, who I am today. Um, so, so September 11, 2001, uh, we just had the 20th uh, anniversary uh, I was in middle school, about 11 years old. Uh, I still didn't specifically know where I belonged, as I mentioned earlier, but from that day on, I, I just knew that it, I wanted to help people. Um, didn't know in what capacity or anything, but I sort of just put it in the back of my head. Um, you know, Several years after that uh, event, you know, a few years past, it's time for high school graduation. Had the best time with my uh, graduating class. Shout out uh, to any of you guys listening, guys and gals listening. Um, just as a bit of a sidebar, every every year, each sort of grade level from our school would go away uh, on a trip called the Malaysian Studies trip. Uh, as seniors, you know, the senior trip was the best one by far. So our graduating graduating class. Uh, flew out to Sarawak, which is in um, uh, eastern Malaysia. Um, and we lived with the Orang Asli, or the sort of indigenous uh, people deep within the Sarawakian jungles. Um, and during this time, 
uh, we were there, we would eat and sleep in the same long houses and, you know, ultimately help them with building. I think when we were there, it was like sort of like an irrigation system or um, like a dam that fed water to their long houses. Um, don't know why I mentioned that. It was just a fun story. So anyways, <laughs> after graduation, still didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I knew I wanted to help people, but I didn't know, you know, what capacity or specifically how I was going to do it. Um, I took part in a lot of volunteer programs run by the school. Uh, one in particular called SCAP, which, um, shout out to SCAP, uh, stands for the Street Children Assistance and Development Program uh, run in Cambodia. They do some amazing work for street children and orphans around the country, and it was, you know, an absolutely amazing experience being able to be part of those trips uh, to Cambodia. Um, then, sort of after a bit of traveling, just decided I'd apply myself and actually, do, you know, do something. So, I enrolled in uh, psychology at uh, university. My girlfriend at the time was from Melbourne. Uh, you know, we met in high school. So I wanted to keep the relationship going. We, we moved to Melbourne, uh, and I absolutely loved it because Melbourne, for those of you who don't know where it is, it's a, it's a city in Australia uh, in a state called Victoria. It's pretty much a city made up of people from everywhere. Um, that's a, you know, some of the best coffee on the planet as well. Um, and so during my time at uni, I enrolled in a few sort of electives in criminal justice um, faculty. And... Um, you know, through speaking to other sort of classmates, I discovered that a few of them were applying to the Australian Federal Police, um, also known as the AFP, and uh, Victoria Police, or VicPol. Uh, and then, you know, boom, the my, my brain was just, you know, synapses were firing in all cylinders. I was like, this is it. Uh, you know, when I mentioned that I was an 80s and 90s movie fan, I might have undersold that I was obsessed, you know, with Lethal Weapon, Die Hard, Speed. They were on endless repeat in my house. So now, you know, speaking to my classmates, I was like, the police helping people, you know, potential potential 90s action movies, you know. Um, I, could, I could live the, the lethal weapon life, um, you know, purpose. This was it. Um, so just before, you know, going to the policing system in, in Australia, so... For those of you who don't know about the police systems, basically you have the AFP who look at you know Commonwealth-based offences. Uh, they're sort of the point of contact or liaising agency for Australia and other agencies like the FBI, Interpol, etc. Uh, and then each state has their own police force as well. In my case, being in Melbourne, it was Victoria Police. Um, at the time, I wasn't a citizen, uh, an Australian citizen, so I, I wasn't able to join the AFP. Um, I was a permanent resident, so... I, um, you know, Vic Pole it was, I uh, spoke to, uh, my girlfriend, um, and then my mom within five minutes of those conversations, uh, I submitted my online application, uh, a few months later, um, my, well, my fiance then at the time I broke up, uh, it took it quite bad, went, went on a bit of a downward <laughs> spiral, um, and, Fortunately, I had some amazing friends who helped me get through it. And, you know, several more months later, uh, I got an email from Victoria Police Recruitment. You know, your academy start date, September 2014. Awesome. So fast forward, day one at the academy. Just felt like deer in the headlights, you know, probably the most accurate description. 
Um, mainly, well, I don't know if it's still the case, but back then, like the signage at the uh, Vic Paul Academy car park was just terrible. Uh, you know, I had no idea where the hell I was going. Um, naturally, I then gravitated to another person who looked equally as lost. Uh, she'd later become one of my squad mates. Um, uh, what's my point here? It was, you know, Vic Paul, fix your signage if you haven't already at the um, academy. Anyways, day one at the academy, instructions were given to meet the squad in a certain building at a certain time. Easy enough to find the squad because, well, we're all the newbies. Um, we're all wearing, you know, basically business suits instead of the instead of police uniforms. Um, so yeah, day one, pretty much death by PowerPoint, trying to, you know, gauge everyone, suss everyone out in the squad. Um, I was the only Asian bloke, so immediately thought, great, you know, I'm the diversity hire. Um, so the day ended uh, with, oh, by the way, you know, square away your life insurance. Make sure you uh, nominate someone to inherit your treasure. Yeah, cool. Um, it's just it's death by PowerPoint. <laughs> um, a few days later, we were all out of our suits finally and into police uniforms, looking a bit more like we fit in, uh, except for the fact that our epaulets had this, you know, in bright white stitching that said recruit on it. Um, still, you know, the uniform was on. It was pretty awesome. Uh, and at this point, our squad had, you know, we, we gelled pretty well, um, but we we're still strangers sort of navigating, you know, in this new space of ours. Um, a few days later, we um, sort of had a vote to nominate our squad leader and deputy squad leader. Instantly, like instantly, we all knew who the squad leader was going to be. It was this army reserve, um, reservist officer with gray hair who was annoyingly detailed and just an all-around boy scout. Don't worry, he's, he's one of my best mates. We take the piss out of each other all the time. If you're listening to this, I love you lots, bro. <laughs> um, so the deputy squad leader, though, the, that position was, was a bit of a question mark. I put my vote in. And at the end of the day, the uh, the votes were counted. And um, what do you know? I was voted uh, deputy squad leader. It was, it was pretty cool. Um, fast forward 33 weeks. Um, we all graduated from the academy. Uh, you know, this once lost and lonely guy uh, that was, you know, had the belongingness that I was searching for. Um, I, f I sort of found it in, in this new blue family. Um, so after graduation, we all go off in our different training stations uh mine would be paran uh station so shout out to all the members that at paran um it's an absolutely amazing place to to be a cop for those of you obviously who don't know the paran response area includes some of the sort of wealthiest areas in i'd say in in most yeah, in, in all of australia one of the yeah one of the most wealthy areas and then on the other side of that response zone is one of the poorest areas um and then the one connecting feature is um, a street called Chapel Street. Just runs sort of north south down the middle of uh, the response zone. Uh, so you had a good mix of violent offending, drugs, thefts, um, just all around great community policing. Really, um, would have could have stayed there my entire career and, and uh, would have had a blast. Uh, but unfortunately for our squad, uh, <laughs> and several after, we had news that we were there were positions that needed filling at um, an area called the transit safety division <laughs> um 
Now, at the time, we were a bit gutted. Uh, one, we were all enjoying our training stations and, you know, getting to know our new our new uh, colleagues. Um, and then, two, heard rumors that going to transit would be, you know, boring, a step in the wrong direction for our careers, all this sort of negative press that um, had been circulating. Um, and either one of those things um, would really be true. Um you know, transit policing is basically policing along the public transport network, um, deterring, investigating, and responding to, to crime on trains, uh, sorry, on trains, uh, train stations, uh, you know, anything transport related. Uh, so, you know, as young gung-ho, straight out of the academy officers, we, you know, we, we didn't want to ride the trains, you know, the trams and the buses. Like, what are you talking about? We want to get into the police cars and, you know, drive around with, uh, with our uh, blueies on um but we figure you know if we were gonna have to do those things we should probably be the best at it um and i think we did a pretty good job uh at that like you know, all, all the squads that started it um at transit around the same time that we did so i think the management team at the time saw that we we're putting in the hard work and they sort of let, let us operate pretty freely it was it was actually a pretty good experience in some uh in some respects um, there were a lot of plain clothes shifts. Um, you know, it was, we weren't locked into one specific response zone. We could travel, you know, freely sort of within the metropolitan areas. Um, and then on January twentieth, uh, two thousand seventeen, I was uh, at the Flinders Street uh, train station uh, police booth. Um, you know, I looked out the window and I saw a car doing donuts on uh, on a major intersection it was of swanson and flinders street um i made an i made eye contact with another um another police officer who was in the booth with me um we were sort of uh we, we'd graduated from the academy around the same time as well and I, I knew him quite well um so yeah we were both like this is going to turn to shit um you know, we, we ran out to our police vehicle and saw the car take off uh, up Swanson Street. And then um, um, we're, our sort of thought was that it was going to turn off to Burke Street, which which it did. Um, we then heard, you know, the, the transmission over the air saying that this uh, this car had hit pedestrians. Um, so my offsider and, and I, our only goal at this stage was to you know, try to find this vehicle, smash into the car, uh, and hopefully stop it. Um, unfortunately, being that time of day, traffic um, was pretty backed up. Uh, on top of that, we were also in a Volkswagen Transporter like van, uh, so we weren't getting anywhere quick. Uh, we decided to park as close as possible uh, to you know where sort of the carnage was, I suppose. Uh, and begin assisting, uh, you know, the pedestrians. Um, triaging those, you know, in front of us as we made our way to, to uh, you know, the victims. And uh, providing first aid. You know, up to this this stage in my sort of short career, I'd seen quite a few, uh, you know, dead body deceased. Uh, in the job from, you know, suicides to natural cause deaths, like, you know, in the elderly and that sort of thing. Uh, but this was different. It was sort of the first time I was, 
um, in a position where it's actively trying to keep someone alive um, and then you know, doing it on a sidewalk uh, in the middle of the city. Um, unfortunately, the, the lady that, that I was trying to help uh, would pass away sort of 10 days after the incident. Um, you know, it, it took a while for me to, um, you know, not forget it, but it, it, it took a while to sort of let go of, um, you know, it was after she was taken by the paramedics, my offsider and I stayed on scene for several more hours until we were, um, sort of all rounded up. All the police officers who were sort of first on scene were rounded up, taken to the Melbourne East police station to see, you know, police welfare, that sort of thing. Eventually, later on in the day, we get back to our office. Um, you know, I put the outer vest of my uniform in the waste bin as it was you know, covered in, in blood and quickly went on sort of the um, the ordering uh, uh, page on the intranet to order a new high-vis vest. Um, and then, you know, after speaking to my bosses, went home that night, you know, uh, to a very worried wife, uh, hugged her very tightly, uh, and then was bombarded with calls and texts um, from you know all my amazing friends, family, and squaddies. Uh, and then a week later, my squaddies all rallied, all rallied around me, and um, you know came around for a barbecue, just classic Australian pastime. <laughs> um, yeah, and then it was sort of, I suppose not to downplay it, but business as usual, um, you know, went back to the office, back to work, uh, that sort of thing. Um, a couple of weeks after I was, you know, back on the road again, got my new high-vis vest, uh, you know, thank goodness, otherwise command would have cracked it, you know, an officer not wearing their high-vis vest, what the hell? Um, so on this shift, my offsider, who's an absolute legend, who graduated, um, it was just a squad after mine, um, we were both working the, the divisional van together. We heard a job come up for, you know, potential, can't remember specifically whether it was shots fired or it was a possible gunshot, uh, to the head, something, something like that sort of came up on air. Um, I immediately picked up the radio and, you know, we were the first unit allocated to the job and the first unit on scene. Uh, the address that was given though was, um, was, it was a, you know, an address on Latrobe street and, we sort of gauged where it was, um, you know, prior to actually getting there and then confirmed it when we got there. It was the AFP building um, in, uh, it was basically the AFP Melbourne headquarters. So we kind of looked at each other like, what the hell could this be? Spoke to the security downstairs who didn't really know what was happening um, and came to the conclusion that, you know, it was sort of when you're doing your risk assessments, one of three things potentially: number one, an active armed defender; number two, um, as it was a police building, maybe it was an accidental discharge; uh, number three, you know, potential suicide. Um, you know, I'm making it sound like we had you know all the time in the world to discuss this, but like everything in sort of the first responder world, we go through these potential scenarios and risk assessments within seconds. Um, so obviously, for us, we treated it. Uh, initially as the most severe sort of case would be the active armed defender. Um, luckily, we had a little sort of moment to compose ourselves enjoying the, the elevator music up to the uh, whatever floor it was on. I think it was level three or something like that. 
Um, unfortunately, though, when we got to the final um, location, uh, it was in the in the female bathroom. As we made our way through, and it was the last cubicle there. We found a, a police officer um, who tried to complete suicide. Um, you know, I still remember just being there trying to secure her, you know, firearm that she dropped. Um, my partner at the time, you know, putting pressure on her head, uh, as a, and then eventually the paramedics arrived. Um, I helped them, you know, load her onto the stretcher, brought her downstairs. And, you know, to the, to this day, I still remember her sort of, you know, the squeeze of her hand, um, uh, whilst I walked her to the, you know, walk them to the ambulance. Um, and it was just, you know, it was another experience of trying to keep somebody alive. Um, uh, you know, after, after the, the paramedics left with the detectives and stuff, um, my, my partner and I, you know, gave our statements, returned to the office, uh, you know, another vest in the bin for me. And it was, um, it was also sort of time for a change from transit. Um, you know, this stage we'd all been there two years, um, just, just looking for something new, I suppose. Uh, for me, I, I wanted to get back to general duties and, and, worked for van again um i chose the melbourne east police station uh, i was right in the middle of the city uh the rationale for me was if something big were to happen it would happen in the city and i wanted to be part of it um so i spent about just over two years at melbourne east uh, and, and loved every minute uh, of it you know from the sort of the fast-paced weekends uh you know nightclubs and that sort of thing to working the sporting arenas like the MCG, Rod Laver um, for the Australian Open, the cricket, that sort of thing. Um, and on top of it all, it was just an all-around amazing crew who worked, you know, tirelessly, tirelessly to um, keep the city safe. Uh, and yeah, just loved every moment. Um, but one of the I can't remember who gave it to me, but a bit of advice that I got early on, you know, in the academy was. Uh, not to stay at one place too long, uh, you know, try to move around and experience different options that policing had to offer. Um, and uh, so, yeah, just over two years at Melbourne East, um, I sort of, it was it was time again, just you know, the natural sort of change um, took place. So I uh, moved on to Mel- from Melbourne East to the Operations Response Unit, uh, the ORU. Um, there were a few others from Melbourne East actually that had moved there as well. Um, and we all sort of welcomed the change. Um, at the ORU, we had access to just yeah, great training equipment, um, and we were we worked in or you know were allocated to sort of rougher parts of the state, um, helping out local units uh, who were sometimes you know, stretched really thin. Um, and then at the end of 2019, start of 2020. Uh, Australia really uh, would experience some pretty terrible bushfires um, and um, the ORU uh, we had the opportunity to deploy and assist uh, in the efforts during uh, in Victoria was declared a state of disaster so um, did a bit of country policing um, helping out in, in various parts of the state um, now this takes us to 2020 as uh, I think we're all familiar with uh, and very sick of probably at this stage, um, you know, COVID hit. So at this stage, uh, my fa- my family had grown. Uh, my wife and I, we had a two-year-old uh, and a newborn in tow. 
Um, you know, the borders were shut. Not much was known about the virus. And we quickly sort of, my wife and I realized that if something were to happen to both or one of us, it would probably be a, a while for any relatives to to take or look after, you know, the kids. Um, so we made the decision to to move um, to the UK where, where my wife is from um, as we didn't have any family in Australia. So just to be closer to family. Um, so sort of present day, I suppose. Um, so during this period of change, you know, I wanted to try new things uh, in my career, um, not necessarily just go back into, you know, policing again. Um, so fell into the the private sector, um, specifically in close protection. Um, that's my current career path. I'm currently working in London uh, as part of a, a team that does um, protection for a uh, an ultra high net worth uh, family. Um, absolutely amazing team. A great group of guys um, who I hope maybe I'll get on this podcast. You never know. <laughs> um, but yeah, we, we have a pretty great rotation. It's sort of a couple of weeks on, a couple of weeks off. So outside of, you know, work in the family, I also wanted to start up a, you know, something creative, a bit of a project um, and came up with this podcast. Um, as I've ranted on about for the last God knows how long, you know, I've sort of had the privilege to meet, uh, interact and, and just know so many people from a variety of backgrounds. Um, and each person has a unique story, um, which I've, just greatly benefited, uh, you know, from listening to, to their journeys, um, taking in their sort of one percenters and applying them to my own life. Um, you know, lessons in leadership, resilience, you know, empathy, communication, the list goes on. Um, I figured why not share those stories, uh, through a podcast. Um, so yeah, start up this podcast called the tell me podcast. Um, the reason behind the name Tell Me, uh, I suppose it's a bit of a throwback to the uh, the policing uh, days. Uh, you know, during a police interview, you sort of start off with an with an open question. Uh, tell me, you know, what you were doing. Tell me where you were at this time. That sort of thing. So, the Tell Me podcast. Um, so my hope is to sort of capture, um. I mentioned previously the the sort of one percenters from people um, that I'll have on the show and hopefully um, add value or you know benefit to to you the the audience um, to listen in on. So yeah, so I'm done ranting. Um, so this is just yeah that icebreaker episode just to tell you who I am um, and just you know briefly discuss the podcast. So I hope that you you'll enjoy listening in. Um, there's no real concrete plan. I'm just sort of letting this thing happen organically. Um, you know, just have fun chatting to some pretty incredible people. Uh, I don't have, you know, sponsors. I'm not affiliated with anyone. Um, this isn't going to be, you know, I think there's enough sort of of that, of the sort of politics and, and, and that sort of thing in other podcasts. This is going to be sort of just people's stories, their lives, their journeys, um, I am open to sponsors. Obviously, you know, uh, if anyone wants to sponsor me, let me know. <laughs> uh, more than happy. Um, but yeah, like I'm, I'm not going to push anything down your throats or, or your ears, rather. Um, but yeah, welcome to the Tell Me Podcast. And I uh, can't wait to start putting up these episodes. 
All right, cheers. Thank you.